Before we begin, I'd love to pray for us. So let's pray together. Father, we are indeed guilty, but pardoned, and by grace we've been set free. We stand ransomed through the blood that Jesus Christ shed for us. And though we were dead in our transgressions, you brought life to us. No more are we slaves, God. And it's based upon this freedom, Father, that I pray that you sanctify us today through preaching in this truth. For your word is truth. And as you sent Jesus into the world, so he has sent us into the world. And for our sake, Christ consecrated himself that we might be sanctified in truth. And so, God, it is for this sanctification now that we plead, come and change us by your word through your spirit today. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What if I told you that I had an educational strategy for my children? I was training them, homeschooling them at home, so that all six of them would have the skills to do one and only one profession. And that profession is telegraph operator. I told you that. Or if I told you this weekend I went to the beach and stayed out hours so much on the building the sandcastle so much that I got a second degree sunburn building the sandcastle right on the edge of the ocean line at low tide. Well, what if I told you I had a financial strategy to deal with the market doldrums we saw this week with the mess in China, and that strategy was urging you to invest all of your retirement in MySpace or Blockbuster Video. If I told you these things, you would say, Pastor Williams, you're a fool because you're investing all of your time and all of your resources in things that are already passing away, right? This is the central message as we come to the end of 2 Peter. Remember what Peter has been telling about us as we studied through this book. He's been telling us that everything is going to be dissolved in this material world and it's going to be transformed into something that will stay forever. Look back with me, if you would, in uh, chapter 3 to verse 10. This is the passage that Sean taught us last week. And see if you can catch the emphasis here of things passing away in this current world. Peter said in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So get the picture, it's as if all of our earth is on an iPhone timer, tick, 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 counting down until the day that it will all be transformed, be done away with, undone, but God will create a new existence, a new reality out of the old, in which the old does not exist anymore, only the new. 
Righteousness will dwell there, as Peter says. But it's not here yet, so we're stuck here in the waiting room, right? Between all of salvation history and all that's going to come, we're stuck here, Peter says, waiting. Because everything that God promised to bless us with in Christ hasn't quite arrived yet. And Peter begins to tell us that all of our actions, every thought should be informed as we are waiting by the coming realities of Jesus Christ and how he will transform all things. And so today, what we're going to look at within the text is just a couple of ways that we can live for in the here and now, in the waiting room, that will not pass away. How we can live for that which is lasting. So if you're an outliner, our outline is going to be titled, Labor for the lasting, and the first point is going to be refine your character. The first thing that Peter says we can be doing while we are waiting would be refining our own character. Look what he writes in verse 14 of chapter 3 in Second Peter. He writes, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these new heavens and new earth, that's what he means by these, since you're waiting for these, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So be diligent to be found in Christ when he returns as one who is holy, right? Without spot or blemish. That's talking about your internal stuff, your emotions, your desires, your impulses, your dreams, your thoughts, your morals. All of those things need to be purified as we are waiting. Later in verse 18, he says the same thing, same idea, except in different words. Look down at verse 18 in your Bible, where Peter writes, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. What's striking is what he doesn't say here, right? Think about if you were in the position to tell people in your life, maybe your children Uh, or your grandchildren about how to make the most of their time on earth? What are some things that you would tell them? You might tell them, well, education is the key to your success here on earth, so live as a lifelong learner, right? Or you might be stressing to them, this is the only body you'll ever get. Keep it healthy. Or you might say you need to work hard to earn money so that when you retire, you'll be financially stable, right? Or you might say live life to the fullest. Man, have a bucket list. And go do it. All of these things aren't necessarily bad, but it's not what Peter concentrates as Peter, knowing he's going to be executed, is wrapping up all of his writings to the church. He concentrates on this. Be transformed in your character. Right? Verse 18, to Christ be the glory. In other words, your character change. You look more like Christ and he's glorified both now and until the day he returns. And it's as if Peter says, during this great shakeup, when God's going to transform all the world, not much is going to survive it. But what is going to survive is the glory of Christ. So if my character is out to bring magnification and glory and honor to God now, and then the world is changed and we have a new heavens and new earth, what we know is going to subsist, it's going to continue in the new world, is the magnification of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. So if we can be about one now, when the new heavens come, we'll be about the same thing. And we will not have wasted our life, but we would have worked towards something that is lasting. Not long ago, I went on a trip like we just talked about, not to Guatemala, but I was in China. And as we were traveling home after about two days, we got delayed in the airport. 
right? So we're on our way home and we're stuck at the last leg. We're in the city two more hours than we thought we were going to be. And I had two hours to burn. And I thought, well, what can I do with these two hours, my last day in China? But what I didn't do was practice my Mandarin word, right? Ni hao, hello, zaijian, bye. You know, I, didn't, I did not practice those words because when I come back to America, here in Raleigh, by and large, we ain't speaking Mandarin, right? And in heaven, we're not speaking materialism, right? That's going to pass away. The language of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth is going to be the glorification of Christ. When we read in Scripture about what is spoken, it's the magnification of Jesus. So in the here and now, I want to be about striving for purifying and refining my character. Now we have to be careful with this point, of course. I was driving here today uh, on the way to church, and I heard a radio preacher, one of those lullaby preachers, I call them, because at the, at the start of all of their sermons on the radio, they play this nice music, like, and then the guy comes on with a super radio voice, like this. And this guy was preaching a sermon, and the text wasn't unlike our text today. It's a great, famous preacher. He did a good job. But one idea that came across that wasn't exactly helpful in this guy's sermon this morning that I listened to was this. He said, the Bible said we should do certain things, right? So go do them. Bible says we should do this, go, go do them. That's not exactly how Peter presents things. Remember the title of our entire series? We've been doing it six or seven weeks. It's Provider. God is the provider. So when Peter talks about change, like refining our character, before the conversation starts, he tells us God has provided for all that we need to change, right? So it's not gritting our teeth, our own willpower type of change. It's depending on God who's already provided all of the means for our change. We see this in chapter one. If you want to turn back, flip back maybe a page or so as we review what we've learned already. Chapter one of Second Peter. Listen for the language of God's provision. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises. Hear the language there that God has given us things. He's provided for the way to change already. And then he goes through that text talking about adding different virtues, and then he comes down to verse 9 where he says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten what? Something that God already provided for us, right? That he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, purifying your character, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hopefully you get the point Peter is trying to make. Yes, strive forward with all courage. Make that your aim, but know that God by His Spirit has provided the strength already to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So as we're walking through this together, taking seriously Peter's call to change, let's remember the good news that we are provided all things by our Father through the Spirit. So we can seek humility, right? We can strive for self-control. We can be men of integrity and of purity, and on and on and on. God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, has cleansed us from our sin. 
thereby through the Spirit allowing us to have the power to change. Sometimes it's helpful to gain perspective of what the author's trying to get across by looking at the different books that he was writing. So if we were studying Paul, we wouldn't just look at Romans, we'd also look at Ephesians and Galatians. Here in Peter, it's helpful to look back at 1 Peter. So I want you to turn, flip back maybe a page to 1 Peter 5.10. In 1 Peter 5.10, we're given a summary of all that I've been trying to say here. 1 Peter 5 reads thusly, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, see that? He will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He will actually refine your character for you. So God wants us in his power to strive to reform and refine our own character. So let's talk through one way that we can begin to refine our character. And I don't want to pick anything just arbitrary. Let's look at something that Peter actually brings up himself. So if you turn back one more chapter to 1 Peter 4, we'll find another text, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 and 8. In that text, Peter is contemplating how we should live in light of this coming cosmic transformation that we talked so much about last week. Look how he begins verse 7 in 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Sounds a lot like 2 Peter 3, right? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be what? Self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. So what I want to do is focus briefly on one of the character points mentioned in these verses, and that is self-control. Right? So if you're taking notes, the outline point is refining our character, colon, self-control. Let's think a little bit about what self-control is. What does God mean when he tells us to pursue self-control? Well, the idea is that by the Spirit's power, we can move towards people who are not swayed by the intoxicating influences of sin. I'll say that again. Being self-controlled is moving towards being a person who is not easily swayed by the intoxicating influences of sin, right? So when temptation comes, you keep your wits about you, right? You, uh, you say yes to faith, and you say no to the temptation and the overwhelming desires of the flesh. This is what Peter wants, growth and obedience of self-control. Remind me of a video that I want to try to show for you. I was watching videos this week, and this was on YouTube. And you've probably seen this before. It's a gag video where the gag is parents are asked to tell their children the morning after Halloween that they actually stayed up and ate all their kids' Halloween candy, right? So here's some funny reactions to some children after hearing that their parents have actually, it's past, there we go. Let's, uh, let's see if we can get it. Yeah, here we go. Right. Two girls coming down. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> she does pretty good, actually. You want to go finish your cereal? Yes, please. All right, go finish your Aww. cereal. Daddy ate it all. <laughs> 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 all right, watch the kid on the right here. 
You are not nice. We're really sorry. But we. That's where we ate all your candy. <laughs> That's my favorite one of all. <laughs> you just found out that your candy's all gone and you affirm the thievery. Hey, good thief. Good job. That's where we want to be spiritually. If you think about it, how are you going to react when someone takes your candy in life, right? When the thing you value the most is taken away, that's what it is when we're talking about self-control. How do you respond when this happens? Or how do we make how do we grow in this? First, we have to know what it is that controls us. In that video, it's easy, right? When candy is near, we're happy. Somebody takes the bag, tsunami-sized tantrums come. What is it for us? What is it that has control over us? Or in Bible language, what are our idols? Right? Let's pick just one common one that we've talked about here. One common idol that many of us have is the approval of other people. Right? The approval of other people. That's your candy. When your family, your neighbors, your co-workers think well of you, everything's rosy, right? But if someone gets mad at you or they're disappointed in you, they're angry at you, they don't respect you, your whole world begins to revolve around, hey, how can I please that person? Or you wallow in depression because you didn't get your candy, so to speak. Here's some questions from author and counselor Ed Welch regarding uh, this. How can you diagnose whether or not you are controlled by this idol of approval? Here's a question. Do you feel an ongoing sense of peer pressure in social situations? Do you feel peer pressure when you're talking to people? A lot of us felt that in high school, middle school, right? Peer pressure was so huge. Well, if you felt it then, chances are it's still around, just simmering under the surface, the idea that you want to please people. What about when you think about your marriage? Do you regularly end up concluding that you need something from your spouse? That you need something? I wish he would care for me. I wish she would just respect me. She never affirms me, right? He always fails to encourage me. If you landing there, more often than not, you're struggling with this idol of the approval of man? Ever think that you might be exposed? Ever fear that you might be found out, exposed? A lot of businessmen struggle with this. The idea is that they might uh, be seen as a failure, and so their whole life begins to revolve around, how can I be seen as success? And I'm going to talk like I'm a success. I'm always going to respond like I'm only a success. Here's a tricky one. Do you find yourself overcommitted a lot? You find yourself overcommitted. That's sneaky because it could be that you're manufacturing busyness so that you don't have to say no to people lest they become mad at you. So when we consider the answers honestly to these questions, it's not hard to see how we all struggle on some level with this approval of man. So how do we make progress how, how? How do we get to the point where we want to be like the kid in the green shirt? How do we get there? Well, you know, it's no great sin to like the taste of your Jolly Ranchers, right? It's okay to like those. The problem is they get taken away and your whole world crumbles. You've got a bad, puny God there. Likewise, it's okay for people to like you, but if someone's affections are withdrawn 
and you begin to spiral and even sink, then you've got a problem. It's at this point that I'm so thankful that the gospel offers us much hope and help. Think back to the verse that uh, we mentioned earlier at the beginning of 2 Peter 1. If you want to turn there, you can read it or just listen. This is 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 9. Think about the gospel hope we found there. Well, whoever lacks these qualities, and there I would insert self-control when people disapprove of you. That's the qualities he's talking about, self-control. Whoever lacks that is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The idea here is that when we are ruled by the views of others, we're actually forgetting what God has done for us in Christ. There's a lot of glorious truths about the gospel when we contemplate what Christ did for us. But the one truth that he decides to bring up here is the idea that we have been made new, we have been cleansed from our sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, a major part of the good news of Jesus is that he cleans up our messes, right? We don't have to scrub ourselves. We don't have to cleanse ourselves. The Bible says we couldn't do it anyway, right? It'd be like cleaning up the, the tin gen recent explosions in China with a dustbuster. That's not going to happen. The same thing the Bible says about us. We're unable to clean up our own messes. So God sends Jesus, the son of perfections, to come and represent us through his death and resurrection. There's a great exchange where we actually get the cleanliness, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus placed over our own dirtiness. Right? And that's a huge part of the gospel. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. Verse 4, in this, in this great exchange, we have the approval of God. He begins to look at us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here's where the approval part really kicks in, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him. Hear that approval? We're with him. He approves of us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, as Peter was talking about, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. That is good news. Instead of viewing us as enemies, God actually approves of us and gives us Christ himself. Because of this gospel, reality with God is now a fully, intimately approved relationship that we have. And this is how it connects to our self-control. This is how that good news gospel connects to self-control. This is why it matters. Because while we wait here for the new heavens and the new earth to come, struggling to keep our wits about us when you know, we have daddy issues. We still struggle for not getting dad's approval years ago, right? Or our neighbors sneer at our lifestyles or our spouses don't appreciate our efforts. While we wake, wait here, we can make strides in our character by remembering that we have been cleansed of our sins. Therefore, God approves of us. All the approval that we ever will need, we have gained it in Christ. Entering heaven is like flying with Delta. You're not going to take 30 bags of approval on Delta. 
You get one bag and that's Christ's approval. And that's all that you ever need. Good news. Good news. He's called us here through Peter to never stop rehearsing to yourself how much God approves of you in Christ. How do you do that? Remember, you're his son. You are his daughter according to this text. He gives you an inheritance. He sits with you in the heavenly places. And you share in all the riches of God in Christ. There's no better news than that. There's no more intimate approval than that. The God of the whole universe approves of you so much that he draws you into Christ himself. That's good candy, right? It can't be taken away. And that's how we grow in refining our character. It's meditating, being shaped by these realities on a daily basis, focusing on these things. There's something else for us here in the text today. We're not only called to refine our character, but second point of your outline, also we're called to repent. Repent while there is still time. Repent while there is still time. Now these two notions of uh, refining your character and repentance are really closely related, but I'm separating them here. Here's the thought that Peter is anticipating. If we really believe that there's a coming New heavens and new earth. Christ the Lord is going to come and he's going to usher in this great, fantastic time with a new heaven and new earth. We might be tempted to ask God, God, why don't you just do it now? Why are you waiting so long? Why am I stuck in the waiting room? Why are you being so pokey? Come and come now, right? Well, Peter answers that, that thought in verse 15. Maybe you have the same thoughts. You're tired of the mess. You're tired of the fight of life. You're tired of the grief. You're tired of the heartache. And you turn to God and you say, God, why don't you come quickly? Here's the answer in verse 15. Peter says, you should count the patience of our Lord. That's patience in coming. The patience of our Lord as what? As salvation. What does he mean by that? Well, simply, he means that God is actually saving you. He's rescuing you by allowing you, by waiting, so that in his infinite wisdom, you'll have time to repent now. So the patience of God coming is actually a means for you to have more time to repent. Peter's words, his next words in verse 15 are fascinating. Look what he says. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul, this is Peter writing about Paul, Just as he also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, verse 16, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in these terms about these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. Here's what was going on. Apparently, Paul had written some of his letters, and they were being circulated already here in the mid-60s when Peter is writing this. And so Peter's audience had got a hold of uh, Paul's letters and they were reading them and they were reading places like in Romans where Paul says salvation uh, is the gift of grace and also that we are freed from the power of the law. And these people in Peter's audience were twisting that to mean we don't have to repent. We can live however we want to, right? Salvation's by grace. We couldn't earn it anyway. Let's just go do what we want to do. That's what Peter's dealing with. People having this type of attitude. I remember that. I went through that phase. For me, it was in college. 
was the first time that I ever sat down and actually read through Romans and some of Paul's, and I was like, this is great. All these years I've been living a not gospel, right? I, I get good with God by not drinking, right? Not participating in immorality with women, not using violence against others and my parents. But I read Paul, and he's like, hey, you got all this freedom. Stop with the knots. And so I immediately reacted to that by saying, hey, I can live any way I want, which was bad. Totally ignored other parts of Paul's writing, like in Romans 8.13, where he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll what? You will die. Seems that repentance is necessary here. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, which is repentance, which is what Peter's talking about, you will actually live. So Peter's trying to reclaim Paul here and say, my gospel lines up with his gospel. He preached repentance. I'm going to preach repentance. And it's crucial to your success as a follower of Christ. He says it again in verse 17, a little differently. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that what? That you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. The error there is that you don't have to repent people and lose your own stability. So what things might carry us away and wreck our own stability in Christ? Again, let's use Peter's own words and look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, because he names off very, very clearly things that he wants us to put away. Paul will say put off and put on. Paul will use that language. Peter here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter will use the language of putting away. That's what he talks about when, he, when he's trying to say repentance. Verse 1 of chapter 2 gives us a list. You can put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. So let's pick one. Let's go with envy today. Let's pick envy. What exactly is envy? Envy is a lot of things. One thing it is, it's the evil twin brother of love. That may be helpful for you to think of that way. Envy has an evil twin. He's an evil twin brother of love, right? Love hopes the best for others. What does envy do? He wants to see him fail. Love takes joy in the advancement of your neighbor. But envy actually wants to advance in, in place of the neighbor, right? That's the way envy works. I was reading the New York Times this week. Editor Perul Segal was doing a talk on envy. And this is what she said. I thought it was notable. She said, when we feel jealous, we tell ourselves a story. We tell ourselves a story about other people's lives. These stories make us feel terrible because they are designed to make us feel terrible because we're the actual ones who are both the teller of the tale and the audience. And we know just what details to include to dig that knife in. So jealousy makes us all amateur novelists. That's true, isn't it? When you struggle with envy, you begin to tell yourself something in your head, like a fantasy novel you begin to write. If you see that your coworker is advancing and they got the promotion that you wanted, you can just see how the story is going to play out in your head at the start of it. You're the hero who's been done wrong, right? Somehow in your mind. And the climax is going to be as you advance and finally prove to everybody in your fantasy novel 
that you deserve the promotion and your coworker actually cheated to get it, right? And then the conclusion will be you're shown as the hero to all and your coworker. You know, we play these type of novels in our brains. You walk into somebody's house, they've got the cabinets that you wanted. They've got the hardwood flooring that you wanted for your house. And then you begin to write the novel. And the novel, you deserve this more than them, right? You are the heroic one. They are shameful. You should have this. They should. We do this all the time. We are novelists when we think about dealing with envy. So how do we make strides here in putting to death our own envious passions? Well, again, we get a lot of help here in the gospel as written to us from Peter. Let's look back at 1 Peter. I just read that text from 1 Peter 2.1. If you remember, he began, he began by saying, so put away all malice and be all that stuff. So, that so means in reaction to what I just said, so go and do this. Like a therefore. So let's look at what he just said in 1 Peter 1. We read this earlier, but I want to read it again. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following, look at what he says and think about, think about how this pertains to envy and putting it off. Verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you. Here's a promise that cuts to the very heart of envy, right? Did you see it? God in Christ has caused us to be born again as new creatures. Creatures that will live forever because Christ in his resurrection proved that we will live forever. This great inheritance is actually eternal salvation from the wrath of God. And what's included in this great inheritance, in Peter's words, is something that is imperishable, salvation that is unfading, undefiled. So if envy, track with me here, if envy is wanting things or even an entire life of someone else, you want their things, you want their life, you want what has happened to them to happen to you, that's how envy works. The way we fight this, the way we counterpunch it, is to assure ourselves of the things that we already have in Christ. That's what the gospel does. Instead of being consumed by what we don't have, a promotion, rock star husband, perfect health, right? Instead of being consumed by that, to be overwhelmed in remembering what God has given us in the gospel. An imperishable, eternal life, unfading, perfect rescue from God's wrath in Jesus Christ. That's not a fantasy novel. That's nonfiction. And that's what Peter says we should grab hold of. Also, some more help. 1 Peter 1, 13. If you're like me and you struggle with envy, 1 Peter 1, 13 is for you. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on what? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. So not giving in to the passion of envy is somehow related to looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and the grace that is to be brought to us there. I think a part of what Peter is saying there is a constant 
mental compare and contrast as we go through life, right? That's what he means by setting your hope fully on what's going to come in the future at the return of Jesus. Each morning we can rise up out of bed and throughout the day our identity can be actually made up of what we already have in Christ promised that will be fully revealed when he returns. It's almost like that um, paperclip trading game. Have you ever played that game where you start out with an insignificant object like a paperclip and the goal of the game is to go to someone and see if they'll trade with you something a little bit better, right? And then you take that something a little bit better, like a pencil maybe, and you want to get this pencil and you want to trade it up for a pen because the pen's better than a pencil. Next, next, next. The goal is to trade up for as good a thing as you can get. One guy on the internet not too long ago actually started with a red one on his desk and traded all the way up to a house. Pretty incredible. Well, think about, if you were playing that game, how would the game go if you started with a giant diamond paperclip? Right? Every house you went to, you'd be, <laughs> they'd be like, oh, I'll trade you something for that, and you'd compare it, and you'd be like, no, you, you can keep your pencil. I'll go to the next house. They, and next thing you compared it to, yeah, that's a book? Yeah, no, thanks, I'll keep the paperclip. All day long, you would have a very not-so-fun game because you started off with the best stuff. That's kind of what Peter is saying here. We've got to realize what we're starting the day with. We're starting each day with an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, can never be taken away. God, it's the great salvation from the wrath of God itself in Jesus Christ. And this is how we'll kill envy together, right? You have a more attentive husband than me. Hey, marriage is going to pass away, right? But the salvation I have in Jesus will not. I don't have to envy you. You have a yard that's bigger than mine? Well, that yard one day will be transformed. It's going to burn. But what I have in Jesus is going to carry forever and ever. I'm tempted to want your promotion until I convince myself by the power of the Spirit that there's no greater promotion than being set in the heavenly places with Jesus. See how that mental activity has to happen? You're always comparing and contrasting the things of this world, which are just this little, they're going to last this long, with the things that will be eternally yours in Jesus. We have to strive to put off our envy. And through all this, I don't want you to miss the common theme of the book that keeps coming out. Whether we're improving our character through growing in self-control or we're repenting and we're putting off envy, whatever we're doing, that's all empowered by our great provider God. That's why we call this provider because all that we need has been provided by him for us. Look in 1 Peter 2 with me. Great example. Here he describes all that, some of, some of what God provides for us in Christ. Not all of it, but he describes a lot of it. Second, second chapter of 1 Peter, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's like a highlight reel of God's provision, isn't it? 
you're a list maker, you can just write these down. God chooses you. That's one thing He's provided for you. He chooses you. Ultimately, He is the one who elected you to faith, making you His chosen race, providing you a way into all the blessings of Jesus Christ. Also, you're made royalty, right? Since God in Christ is the reigning king, when you were united to Jesus Christ, you too became royalty. No matter where you're from, no matter what your parents did for a living, what your current socioeconomic status is, you are royalty in Jesus. You think our neighborhood needs to hear this? Absolutely it does. That's good news. You're also a priest. Priests had access to the living God that others did not have. You have that. You can now go out and with your life make living sacrifices. You are a priest. You're a part of a holy nation. As Israel was to be, you now are. Once you were not a people, now your identity is being God's people. And as with everything else in this highlight reel, it was brought to you by our good Father. You've been called by God into the marvelous light, out of the darkness. God's Spirit has provided a way for you to see what most will never see. The glorious light of Christ's beauty. You have mercy. Ever struggle with self-pity? You wish somebody would just have a little bit more compassion on you? The promise of God here is that we've been given mercy, even though we didn't deserve it. God has compassionately pardoned all your past sins. He has provided for you mercy. Maybe you're not a list person. Maybe you're a story person. Here's a story. Back in 1940, Great Britain found itself in a fight for her life. Very existence was being threatened in a war with Nazi Germany. And even though they just started the war not long ago, they were already running by 1940 out of supply, critical to run the war. So they turned to America, who wasn't in the war yet, and they said, hey, we need a bunch of supplies basically for free. What can you do for us? And America responded with what we call Lend-Lease Agreements. They made agreements to basically give them things for free if we could squat on their land in the future. So by the end of World War II, U.S. had provided for all the Allies up to $50 billion in resources and munitions and foods, things so the U.K. and our other Allies could fight the war. And you might think that it was just out of generosity that Roosevelt was acting, especially since uh, Winston Churchill famously said this was the most unsword act that one nation ever did for another nation in history. But actually, though, Roosevelt in his provision he designed this to save America's own interest in defeating Nazi Germany, but also being able to wait to get into the war until America was ready. The great provision was given so that America could actually wait until they were ready to come in and join the war. And friends, I know many of you here today are in the fight of your life. You feel bombarded, right, by life's Luftwaffe, right? You feel that? Megatons of grief coming down from life's air force. You feel like a hand grenade of despair has been lofted into your bunker every time you deal with your children or your husbands. You can't pay next month's bills and you realize that. Sneaky submarines of despair come into your world. The good news of the gospel is the sleeping giant that is Jesus Christ has been awakened. He's almost here. He's coming into the war. He's just waiting 
until the time is right so that you can have a chance to repent and magnify Him. And then He will come, transform all things, and deal with sin and Satan all at once in His glorious return. So my prayer today is that we would pursue refining our character, that we would repent until that great and glorious day comes. Let's pray together. God, we do pray, as Peter ends his great work, he ends it with apocalyptic talk. If we're going to take his words seriously, we must have in view this great cosmic overhaul, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, which includes all of our reality. And so I pray, God, that you would help us while we're here in the waiting room of life, that we would pursue hard after good work. We would try to refine our character and grow in self-control by your power. And through your spirit, we would put off the sins of envy and other things so that when Christ comes, we would be found spotless and blameless. God, give us the power this week to overcome our sin in the gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.